Well, in a November 2011 article at Business Insider, Abby Rogers listed the 10 greatest empires in the history of the world. Her list included the Yuan Dynasty that boasted almost 60 million people in the year 1291, almost 17% of the world's population. She also included the Russian Empire, which ended in 1917, as well as the Mongol Empire under the rule of Genghis Khan. Topping her list was the British Empire, with its colonies and trading posts, an empire that didn't really come to an end until about 75 years ago. And as she begins her list, Miss Rogers writes that aside from their leadership model, the only th- other thing all these empires have in common is that each of them disappeared. It's quite the sight, isn't it, to, to visit ruins or see archaeological digs on TV, to see literally dirt left from what used to be magnificent human power. Governments rise and fall, don't they? Empires take power and then fade away. Nothing really lasts forever. This morning in the passage Angela has just read for us, we see a different sort of government promised, though. An empire that, believe it or not, will never come to an end. So we're continuing, dear church, in our Advent study in the book of Isaiah. The word Advent means arrival. And it's a time of year where we remember how God's people waited for his promised king to come. Jesus would come as the Messiah to save his people from their sins. And just as God's people of the Old Testament waited for God's first, or Jesus' first coming, this season also reminds us that we too wait. We wait for the second coming, when Jesus will judge and save one last time. And so we're looking at Christmas according to Isaiah this month, and Isaiah's prophecies of this coming Messiah. Isaiah, as we said last week, was a, was a prophet to Judah in the 700s BC. And as we saw last week, he is prophesying of judgment to come on God's people at the hand of the behemoth of the world at that point, Assyria. And towards the end of Isaiah chapter 8, we see God's people walking through an incredibly dark hour. And we kind of have the question as we read, is there, is there any hope for them? And the answer in Isaiah 9 is an indisputable yes. So church, three things to see this morning as we look through this incredible passage. Let's just see three basic words. Light, child, kingdom. Light, child, kingdom. So look with me if, you're, if you have your Bibles open. Just scan over the, the end of chapter 8 there before chapter 9 begins. And you'll see that God's people are so far from him that they are seeking to inquire of what are called mediums or necromancers. They're seeking to communicate with the dead, to engage in the occult. This is utter spiritual darkness at its, really at its worst in this passage. And in verse 22, we read, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Thick darkness is the setting that we are in as readers as we come to chapter 9. 
Spiritual darkness is overshadowing the people God has promised to save by his king. And so there is gloom, there is anguish, there is distress. Kind of let that hang heavy. As we come to chapter 9, verse 1, and see that glorious but. But. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So there is hope, Isaiah is prophesying to this people in darkness. There is hope, Isaiah as a prophet is looking to the future and he says that this current anguish brought on by Assyria and this current spiritual darkness overshadowing God's people will one day be past, be spoken of as former times. God will bring salvation to his people. Isaiah points out two specific tribes of Israel here, Zebulun and Naphtali. Why why those two? Well, they were kind of the two big tribes at the north of Israel's territory. And thus, they would be probably included in pretty much the first two countries to be invaded by Assyria. They would be brought into contempt. Isaiah is saying, for Zebulun and Naphtali, this won't last forever. So in in those places, he says, I love this, in those places, the first that will experience God's judgment from Assyria will also be the first places God sends salvation. Isaiah says, in the latter time, God has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. How? How has God wrought this change? He has sent his light. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So at, at some point, Isaiah knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that in these very regions where darkness is now known, light will someday shine. He speaks of this in the past. Do you see that? They have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness. He's speaking of this as something that's already been accomplished. That's how sure he is in God's salvation. And church, this light has come in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the king whose birth we celebrate during this Advent season. So if you have your Bible open, turn again, like we did last week, to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We see Jesus in the beginning of Matthew chapter 4, undergoing temptation by the devil. We just saw that in Luke's account a few weeks ago. And then we see him after this temptation, after this testing, beginning his earthly ministry. And and what do we read starting in verse 12? Matthew 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, that's the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Recognize those names? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, what we just read, might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people walk dwelling in darkness in these regions have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What is this light? What is this fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy? 
It's Jesus. Verse 17. Jesus in these regions is beginning to preach. Saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is the light. The light come to those very places of darkness to roll back the gloom. As one author puts it, the dawn will break in the very region that was the first to experience God's judgment. Isn't that amazingly merciful? Jesus is a light penetrating the darkness in Isaiah 9-2. He is a light pushing back the spiritual oppression of his people. How, how does the Gospel of John put it? In John chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness. And what? The darkness has not overcome it. Church, one of the prevailing themes of the advent of Jesus Christ is this theme of light triumphing over darkness. We sang of it last week. I think we'll sing of it again next week in that kind of mournful hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Do you remember one of the verses? O come, thou dayspring, thou dawn. Come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. These are the words of Isaiah. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Jesus has come as a sort of lightning bolt, piercing the gloomy clouds of night, enveloping everything in brilliant divine light. Light and darkness cannot coexist, can they? Light always banishes the dark. Jesus is the light of the world, come to banish sin, banish evil, banish Satan, banish hell, banish darkness forever. It's like what happened at the very dawn of creation, isn't it? At that time, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And, and here Isaiah prophesies of the dawning of a, of a new creation, new hearts given to God's people. Salvation for sinners, light piercing the darkness. It's rendition two of let there be light. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But brother and sister, if if you're in Christ this morning, this is your story too. This isn't just the story of Israel. Your story, every Christian testimony follows this basic overall pattern. I was walking in darkness, but then the light of life interrupted my hell-bound path and brought me into the salvation, glory, and brilliance of God. Church, we we no longer walk in spiritual darkness. We no longer scurry away from the light of God's word like mice in a basement when you flick on the switch. It's not because we're perfect. It's not because we don't have anything to hide. It's not because we feel a temptation to conceal the sins that are within us. No, it's because our sin has already been exposed in the most gruesome way. Jesus on the cross is what our sin deserved. And there's no greater indictment than that. 
And so now as we confess our sin and see it washed away by the blood of our Savior and his death for us, we no longer run from God's light, but we bask in it. Friends, sin hates the light. Sin thrives in the dark. But if you're a Christian, you now walk in the light. You belong to the light. Light is your nature. Your sin has been cast on Christ and you're now called to live with his light shining both on you and then through you. Paul says that again in in Ephesians 5. He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Christian, how are you doing in that area? Are you living like you're a child of light? Are you living in transparency with God and others? Confessing your sin and and then just seeing it all put on Jesus and walking in that freedom? Are you growing in holiness? We are called to be a church where light shines and sin shrivels up. That's the fruit of the gospel in saved hearts. Isaiah continues. He gives more information on how this light comes. In verse 3, he speaks of how God's people will be filled with this incredible joy by God's redemption. In in verses 4 and 5, we see how war will be over and peace will come. How God's salvation will come on Israel and he will break the bonds of those who have oppressed them. This is interesting. Look look at the end of verse 4. It's one of those things that we just kind of scan over because it's just a regular ancient name. But what, what did happen at the day of Midian? Isaiah says at the end of verse 4 that it will be as on the day of Midian. Who conquered Midian? It rhymes. Gideon, right? This is a, a reference to the Old Testament judge Gideon and his 300 men. You can read the story this afternoon in Judges chapter 7. And do you recall the basics of that story? Do you recall how God just kind of whittled down Gideon's army until it was just clear that only God could win this victory? And then how at night, these 300 men had encircled the innumerably outnumbered, they were innumerably outnumbered by Midian. And do you remember what they held? A trumpet, like a flask, and a torch. It's another example of light piercing darkness in victory. As on that day, so will be on this day when the true Gideon leads his God's people into victory. So the light. Next, let's see the identity of this light in verse five, and that is a child. So Isaiah writes about this light, this peace, this joy, and then he he shows how that's even possible. Why can we be expecting this sort of wonderful vision of peace in the future? Well, he says, for to us, a child is born to us. A son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The new dawn will come because God's king will come. And now instead of God's people bearing oppression on their shoulders, you saw that, I think in verse three or four, God will send a king who will bear all the government on his shoulders. War will cease. 
Tumult will vanish. Chaos will end because the king will come. This is the king in the line of David, the one God promised in 2 Samuel 7 would reign on, God's, on David's throne forever. And it's, again, it's Jesus, right? Think of Luke chapter 2, what Jack read for us earlier, how the angels appear to the shepherds and they say, for under you is born. Here are the echoes of Isaiah. He's born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Isaiah looked forward to a birth. And then the angels come and say the birth has just taken place. Jesus is the king given to God's people by God's amazing grace. The king whose authority will never fail. And so with the echoes of of Handel's Messiah in our ears, let's look at these four names briefly. The four names for this long-awaited king. He will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Wonderful counselor. This calls us to consider the promised king's wisdom how perfectly he will execute his majestic reign. I think there's echoes of of Solomon, the greater Solomon. This Messiah king will not just have counselors like Old Testament kings did. He will be the counselor. Flawless, wonderful wisdom in Jesus Christ. Mighty God. This king will be immensely powerful. That's how he will bring wars to cease. I think wonderful counselor and mighty God kind of tie in together, as all these names do. Because uh, one scholar, I was struck by this, he, he sees in the term wonderful counselor, counsel of war. And he says, this king had extraordinary military strategy to defeat the domain of darkness. He is powerful. He will reign in power and might, never to abuse or to oppress, but to save and to rule. This Messiah King will never be able to be vanquished. He will be mighty, the mighty God. And as Jesus comes on the scene, we see more and more the truth that he is not just God's representative, not just God's messenger, not even just God's king, but God himself. God's son, very God of very God, God taking on flesh to suffer and die for his people, to take their sins on himself so that he can then rise again to secure the greatest victory ever won. Everlasting father. Now, this is a bit confusing, isn't it? Because the Messiah King is Jesus. And he's the son, not the father. Right? I hear Isaiah calls the Messiah the everlasting Father. There's different schools of thought about why. Uh, I think two of the best options that I saw uh, were one, I think these are basically the two options I saw, is that one thinks that this kind of wants to emphasize the eternality of Jesus, kind of the ancient of days. So maybe this emphasizes the one who is sent to reign forever and ever. Uh, Another view is perhaps it it is meant to show fatherly love, provision, how God or how the Messiah will protect God's people, much like a father seeks to protect his 
children. And perhaps both are true. But whatever the case, we're struck by this majestic father who never goes away. Whose throne will never fail. And then Prince of Peace. Lord willing, next week we'll see even more about the peace the Messiah brings in just this striking passage in Isaiah 11. But for now, we see in verses 4 and 5 how this king has brought everlasting peace. How? By conquering his enemies. Jesus is the ultimate peace we all desire and long for. He is the person, the peace that John Lennon wished for when he wrote that popular Christmas song. And so this is Christmas for, you, for weak and for strong with those that kind of a little bit creepy children's choir in the background singing that halo chorus, right? War is over if you want it. There's this desire, especially around Christmas, to just, just have peace. There's just a desire to, to want peace at Christmas. Jesus is the only one who can bring peace because he's the only one who can completely banish darkness Conquer evil, make wars to cease, and he does it by bringing perfect light. This is the child, this is the king. And so we finish today in our third point by looking at this king's kingdom. Look at verse 7. Specifically, I want to look at the extent of his kingdom. Isaiah says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. Isaiah says that the reign of this king will be vast and it will never end. The peace that this king Brings will never wane or waver. It will always be. I mean, what a hope this must have been for God's people. Walking in darkness. And Isaiah speaking out of a darkness that will dissipate. Can you imagine just the, the hope his words would have brought and the promise of a, of a king bringing light that would never fail? Peace that would never be broken. Rest that would never be threatened. Church, we've seen the king. He has come. And he has come to purchase that peace for us by taking our unrest and brokenness on himself. He has come to purchase our light by taking our darkness on himself. This king is Jesus. But in a way, God's people most likely didn't really see coming. Jesus would come in two installments. First, he would come 2,000 years ago as the Messiah. In power, yes, but in power to defeat the spiritual darkness of his people. He would come, as we'll see in two weeks, Lord willing, as a suffering servant. Isaiah 53. To banish the darkness of his people's hearts but by dying on a cross and taking their judgment for himself. The cross was a courtroom 
We were meant to hang on that tree for our sin. But Jesus took our place and God the judge banged his gavel, placing his son in our place, placing on his son our sin. So that if we would turn in faith to him, we would be saved. Transferred, as Paul says in Colossians, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. Dear friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe everybody assumes you are, but you kind of just know you're not. You find yourself this morning between Act 1 and Act 2 of the coming, the advent of Jesus. So he's come 2,000 years ago to take your sin on himself, and he's coming again. We know not when. It could be today. He's coming again to condemn all evil and save those who have placed their trust in him. And in the meantime, the door is open and he offers you his salvation. He offers you his light. He offers to take your sin on himself. Turn to him. Be ready for when he comes. And church, as I thought about this passage this week, I was struck, and maybe you are when you were, when you were reading it or when you read it this morning, by just the duration of this king's government. Isaiah says, there will be no end. And that's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? Because everything we know comes to an end. Everything we long for even when we realize it, comes to an end. I mean, the best part of the Christmas season isn't really Christmas Day, isn't it? It's the waiting. It's the buildup. It's the shaking of presents. The best part of the Christmas season, in my view, is right now. Because when Christmas Day hits, it's kind of this buzz of activity, and and then it's done and on to January. Ugh, you know? Everything in life comes to an end. The weekend comes to an end. The summer vacation comes to an end. Even life itself comes to an end. Those empires we thought about a few moments ago, each one disappeared. But Jesus, Jesus' kingdom... Jesus' reign that he has inaugurated or or begun at the cross and will finally come to set up completely when he returns at the second advent, that kingdom, Isaiah says, won't end. He says the king, Jesus, will both establish it and uphold it. So we we talk about different giftings in the church and in our workplaces and in our families, right? So there's there's people who are really good at starting things. And then there's people that are really good at just kind of keeping it going. That's kind of a broad generalization. But we we can talk in those terms. We can talk about the entrepreneur, big picture types, and then the the detailed day-to-day types. It's hard to start something, let alone keep it going. I mean, think about a church plant, right? Jesus will both begin and uphold, both start and maintain his kingdom forever. His kingdom will be accomplished not in oppression, but in justice and righteousness. 
Jesus' kingdom and the peace it brings us in relationship with him will be the one and only happily ever after we ever know. And how will it happen? Is this in any way contingent on us being worthy enough or our power working alongside God to kind of help him save us? Just look at the end of verse 7. There is immense comfort in these words. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the zeal of the Lord of armies will do this. So Christian, are you living like this is true? Are you living like you're a citizen of a kingdom that will never end? You know, as we we look at Jesus's kingdom in the here and now, at, at his gospel going out into the world, it doesn't always look victorious, does it? It looks persecuted. Jesus is often mocked and slandered by those who hate him. But Christian, his kingdom is never threatened by any of that. He will come back and no one's going to be able to stop him. So perhaps you saw the the footage recently of this event where Elon Musk was showing off his new Cybertruck pickup. And maybe you kind of watched along with me repeatedly um, with a chuckle as kind of one of his helpers picked up this steel ball to, to show how invincible and impenetrable the glass on this new pickup truck will be and, and just took it and smashed the window. It was embarrassing to say the least. Stocks plummeted. Church, Jesus will never be embarrassed like that. He will never crack under pressure. His kingdom will never be threatened. His rule will never end. Genghis Khan and the Mongol Empire, gone. The powerful Russian Empire that covered over 9 million square miles, gone. The Roman Empire, gone. One day the United States of America will be a relic of the past. Only one government will never fail. Only one king will never fall. His peace will be far greater than any NATO deal ever achieved. His power will be far more majestic than any show of strength in any military parade the world has ever seen. He will bring light into darkness. And as John says, the darkness will not overcome it. Ever. Christian, do you live like you belong to that kind of kingdom? It's hard to see. In the here and now. He calls us to faith and obedience as we cling to his word and look forward to his second advent. But in the meantime, living as a citizen of that kingdom will mean living in the light. Not being at peace with your sin because all the peace you could ever ask for you found in Jesus. Living as, as a citizen of that kind of kingdom will mean living in boldness. Not being afraid to speak of the truth of the gospel to those around you. Living as a citizen of that kind of kingdom will mean turning away from sinful fear. Knowing your refuge and security is not in any earthly government or success or bank account, but in your Savior alone. That's our king. 
He has come to bring us joy like Isaiah promised there in verse 3. He has come to reign, as we'll sing soon, to rule the world with truth and grace. To bring gladness abounding to his people that will never end. Are you looking forward to that day? Let's pray that it would come soon. Let's praise this king, but first, let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we pray that according to your mercy, you would cause us to be overwhelmed afresh with the vastness and the duration of your reign. This Advent season, as we anticipate your second coming, help us to live like true citizens of your government. We are so grateful that you have come. We're so grateful that you've brought joy to the world. And Lord, we pray that this Christmas season, through us, more and more in our community and our families, would know this joy. Come again quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.